0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net, and this is the long-awaited listener question-and-answer special episode. This was announced a long time ago, but questions have been very slowly trickling in, and various factors have pushed this episode further and further back, which means that some of you have probably been waiting quite a while for answers to your questions, for which I apologize. Also, this post was going to be the 100th episode, but honestly, I've, I've lost track of episode numbering at this point. We are way past 100 episodes, and for all that I like reading about and explaining ancient history, all the podcast maintenance and organization side of things is not my strength. Which is probably a good point to point out that the website that I mention at the start of every episode hasn't been updated very often lately. Will that get better? Who knows? I like reading about ancient Mesopotamian history and I like sharing it with people. I don't like production values, organization, or coherency. I am secretly glad that there isn't anyone else doing this topic on the same thing, just with better production values or i would feel terribly jealous which leads me to the first question of the day which has been asked by a number of people in the past but didn't actually get asked as part of the call for questions but i'm gonna toss it in there anyway because I didn't get a whole lot of questions. Why don't I have any intro music? Why is the editing so poor? Why is the website never updated? Why is the Facebook page never updated? And why do I usually forget about responding to listener emails for a very long time? The answer to the music question is because I don't understand copyright laws, and I don't want to get kicked off of any podcast or YouTube or whatever platform for copyright violations. I don't want to pay any money for music licensing, I'm not talented enough to make my own musical sound effects, and I'm too lazy to put in the effort to figure out how to get royalty-free music into this show. I sort of justify it by saying I like the stark style of no music, no effects, no production value, which I do think sets my show a bit apart from an environment that's increasingly oversaturated with fancy editing and special effects, but it's more of a positive secondary effect, let's be honest. It's not the actual reason why I'm doing it. For the rest of it, the reason I don't have any production values or social media presence or whatever else is that There's a theoretical limit to how much I can spend putting together any one episode, sort of uh, the time budget that goes into each episode. And right now, about 80-90% of that time that goes into each episode is the process of researching and writing. And that last little bit is the recording, the editing, the posting online, which as streamlined as I've gotten, the process still always takes longer than I expect. And straight up, it's not a lot of fun. The fun part for me is the 80% of reading, researching, and writing. Plus, I like recording. I like to hear my own voice, apparently. Uh, I hope you do, too, after a hundred and whatever episodes. The not fun part is the post-production stuff. Anything I added to the post-production would, in effect, reduce the amount of time left for writing the episode. And it would be substantially less enjoyable for me, which is why I don't do it. Anyway, that's the only meta question I had for the episode. All the rest are actually related to something that you, the listener, cares about. Podcast listener Mike K. Deacon asks, What is my favorite obscure fact or little-known object from history? Well, the problem with obscure is that Basically all of Mesopotamian history is obscure, and little known is always relative. Honestly, for most people, the fact that there was a ton of Mesopotamian history before the city of Babylon was even founded, when for most folks that's sort of the oldest of the old, that's a pretty fun one to drop at parties if I ever went to parties. The actual date of founding can be a bit contested, but... For sure, the town wasn't relevant in any significant way until 1800 BCE, by which point the entire Sumerian period had passed, the Akkadian Empire has come and gone, followed by a massive Dark Age so obscure that it ranges and dates from like, what is it, 40 to 150 years or something like that, followed by a Sumerian renaissance, followed by a sweeping transformative invasion by the Amorites, and 200 years of competition. Then finally, we get to the city that people think is the world's oldest and the king who people think created the world's oldest law code, Hammurabi. But I mean, I'm just preaching to the choir. If you've been listening to the show, you know all these things. Closely related to the whole story of Babylon, my favorite underappreciated historical character is probably Sin of Larsa, who would have been the most accomplished ruler of the Middle Bronze Age if Hammurabi hadn't shown up at the last minute to show him up. One of the most defining features of Mesopotamian government in later history, the Ilkham system and its successors, where the government bound soldiers and specialists to the king via grants of land, was pretty much taken wholesale from Rimsin's massive governmental reforms. It was Rimsin who built upon the two centuries of conflict in Sumer and Akkad to finally allow Larsa to climb up out of the Thunderdome of the Isin-Larsa period. It was Rimsin who first came up with the idea of instead of naming each year to just start counting one year's after another probably intending even his successors to count from the capture of the of the city of isin though those successors never actually materialized because hammurabi won the war not only was he a great administrator and a patron of construction and arts and a leader of armies He was also committed to a certain level of morality in his rise to power. He didn't win his wars by just smashing everything, but by patient, careful, methodical maneuvering, taking one weak point after another until his enemies simply fell before him. In many cases, he limited the amount of plundering and pillaging of the places that he conquered because he wanted those cities to be in good shape for years to come, after they joined the Larsen Kingdom, which, I mean, he clearly expected to go on for a very long time, and, well, I mean, he lasted 60 years, so... There you go. He, he did okay. That's why, I mean, I called the episode Rimson the Pretty Good. He would have been great, but he didn't win. But all this, and his focus on justice domestically for the poor and for widows. I mean, that may have been PR. We see a lot of kings talking a big game about that. It may have been pragmatism. It may have been a genuine focus on what was good for the people of Mesopotamia, but whichever of those options it was, it reflects well on his character. And for him to both be doing good and conquering a grand swath of territory, it's pretty rare in history, generally speaking. And as for obscure items, I quite like the Enmabaragesi fragment. It's a little more than a piece of clay stating the name of Enmabaragesi, king of Kish, but it's extremely old. Maybe it dates to 2700 BCE, maybe as old as 3000 BCE. And this isn't actually the oldest named person. That honor belongs to the Egyptians of the so-called Narmer Pallet, which is honestly a far more impressive artifact than anything that has been recovered from Mesopotamia up to this point, but it is significant because we've pretty well established from various sources that Enmar of Kish was the father of Aga of Kish, and Aga of Kish famously went to war with the epic King Gilgamesh of Uruk, indirectly helping to establish that there was, in fact, an historical Gilgamesh who was, you know, heroically amplified in his legends, and that Gilgamesh was not a complete fiction. It may not be super significant in a broad sense, but I like it. All right, on TikTok, user Joysri Das asked if cotton was grown in ancient Mesopotamia. And the short answer to that is no. But there are two longer answers that are both fascinating. Honestly, I've, I've done at this point already some of the reading for the upcoming textiles episode, and it's left me concluding that the history of fabrics is actually really interesting, and could probably get its own whole podcast. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. I have a long list of Things I would like to podcast about in some future world where I have lots of time. It's not going to happen. Anyway, the first answer here is that the history of cotton, which is really cool. In the history of cotton, there's actually a new world species of cotton used in Central America before Columbus, which isn't relevant. But there's one, the one that's relevant to our story is the so-called tree cotton. Which comes originally from Central Asia, and also there's a form of early cotton down in modern-day Sudan. But even though it was like right by Egypt, it never made it down the Nile until surprisingly late, like the first few centuries after Christ, somewhere around there. The tree cotton of Central Asia, though, made its way into the Middle East by way of the Persian Empire and the. 5th century or so BCE, then made it into Europe when Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire. The thing about it, though, is that at this early date, it's only the cotton fibers, not the plant itself, that was known about. The source of cotton was a mystery to Europeans until the Middle Ages, and there are these super cool illustrations of scholastics, trying to piece together all these various reports from traders and soldiers and crusaders and whatever, trying to figure out where cotton comes from, and what they decide is that there exists over in some distant eastern realm a tree that instead of growing fruit, grows sheep. Now they pondered the logistics of how a sheep tree, which they called the Vegetable Lamb of Tartary would would keep the sheep fruits fed and watered, and the whole thing is just remarkable. But ultimately, on the cotton side of things, it didn't make it into Mesopotamia until after the Mesopotamian period had ended. On the other side of it, if there was no cotton, what fabrics did they use in ancient Mesopotamia? Well, 90% of the answer is wool. Plucked, not tree sheep, actual wool from actual sheep... But the wool was plucked from sheep. Shearing hadn't been invented yet. And this wasn't this wasn't as terrible as it sounds. Ancient sheep would usually molt like once a year before the summertime. And so you'd only need a fairly gentle plucking when in season to get the wool off the sheep. My understanding is that nowadays sheep have been like bred to never or to rarely molt, at least among some breeds which makes shearing necessary, but this results in higher wool yields. but that, that's modern times. They didn't have quite as many centuries of breeding all those centuries ago, of course. The other 10% of the answer is linen. Now, there's a certain kind of plant. It's called flax, and when it's grown and processed, you can peel off the bark in thin strips, which can then be woven into thread. Now, linen was super popular in Egypt, but it didn't really grow well in Mesopotamia, so it was far more of a fabric for kings and rich people. On the super high end, there was also a material called sea silk, or byssus. I don't know how you pronounce it, something like that. Made from a type of sea creature in the Mediterranean Sea. I've told that it's a super fine thread, but the animals that make it were hunted nearly to extinction in antiquity, they thought it was completely extinct for a while. It's, it's back now, and only limited supplies of byssus are available, and only to the very super wealthy, so it's basically we're back to where things were 4,000 years ago. But wool and linen is not, not the start and end of that broader sort of category. In the early days, hides were used as garments, and later we hear of hides being turned into leathers or used as wall and floor coverings, sometimes as leathers, sometimes with the fur still attached. Also, the swamps of Sumer were full of reeds, and these could be woven into all sorts of things. Nets and baskets, whole houses were woven out of reeds. Even clothing for the swamp dwellers may have often been woven reeds. Anyway, we're going to look at textiles a lot more in an upcoming episode. They are, let me tell you, way more exciting than I initially expected. Over on YouTube, YouTube commenter Hiro Karam Ari wants to know about the relations between the Assyrians and the people of Urartu and the Scythians. Well, for the Scythians, the answer is easy. Assyria never formally expanded anywhere near that far north. No Mesopotamian dynasty did. We don't really even hear much about folks crossing the Black Sea or going north of the Caucasus Mountains in this era. And so there may have been some isolated, enterprising trader going out that far, but the two nations were, or I guess peoples, were largely ignorant of each other. The same can't be said for Urartu, though. We're going to be hearing a lot about these folks as we move into the Iron Age, but their origins actually lay in the Bronze Age somewhere. Now, these are mountain folks, one of many, many barbarian groups living at the fringes of Mesopotamian society. Now, I say barbarian because I have the Mesopotamian sort of framework when I approach these things, but I mean this mostly, this is how the Mesopotamians considered them. Urartu was at least as civilized as the Hurrians, and we remember, like, they run the full range from actual nomad barbarian to city builders, though they lived way up in the mountains north of the Tigris River, so their cities never really got as big as the Mesopotamians one did. Uh, But they were fully capable of being civilized. They just weren't civilized as a rule in the Mesopotamian sense, if that makes any sense. I don't know. It isn't super clear when they moved in. They could have been there for a really long time, and we just never hear about them. Or they could have migrated from somewhere north or east. We just don't know. They do start showing up sort of in the Late Bronze Age with the fall of the Mitanni. Maybe they were a former Mitanni subject. Maybe they were invaders moving in as the Mitanni collapsed. Uh, At this point, Urartu is a people group, though. Not a nation. In the Iron Age, they're going to become one of the more significant people groups in the wider Near East, and we're going to see them coming into conflict with the Assyrians. That is, in fact, most of our sources on the Urartans, or Urartu... Urartans, yeah, probably. Um, And eventually being conquered by Asher uh, in one of the Assyrian big empire-building pushes. And then they sort of seem to fade out of history over time after that, and don't really have much of a long term existence, and the people, the distinctiveness of Urartu, eventually culturally transitions or gets replaced by other groups. Now, Joseph Schneider asked a whole bunch of questions a long time ago, not all of which I have good answers for, but we have more time than questions, so I'm going to do what I can. First up is, Why did the center of the economic world in the Near East shift over time from Mesopotamia to the Levant and Syria? Now, this goes a bit beyond the scope of our show, but I mean, if if you're not quite sure what the question even is, if you think about it, when Sargon was building the Akkadian Empire, the regions of Syria and the Levant were basically a backwater. While by the time you get to the Greek and Roman eras, things have shifted dramatically in favor of the Levant as the wealthiest part of the Near East. Indeed, one of the wealthiest parts of the entire world. Uh, I would say that the biggest reason for that, above everything else, is that Mesopotamia dries out over the millennia. Very slowly at first, but already with the Kassite dynasty, we're seeing signs of what's coming. Already while it's the cradle of civilization, we can already see that it's right at the edge of becoming a salt desert. And eventually, the whole region just tips over the edge. I mean, it goes back and forth a little bit, but the climate starts out pretty good and gets worse over time. There's no similar climactic disaster awaiting the Levant, so it's able to keep growing as the civilizations around it do. Another reason is that trade was always really hard going east of the Iranian mountains, and after the Indus Valley civilization falls silent, there's no major civilization out there that the Near Easterners still have contact with. Even when the various peoples of India do, you know, rebuild civilization and stuff, the Mesopotamians don't contact them nearly as much. Uh Ah... It's a lot easier in the Mediterranean Basin. But in the early days, there's not a whole lot going on west of Crete. And so, even though it's easier to move around the Mediterranean Basin, there's no reason to move around. Uh, And you're already passing a whole lot of nothing, even if you're just going to the early Minoans in Crete. As the whole region, though, moves from deep antiquity into the classical age... Civilization starts to light up around the Mediterranean basin. And so there are just so many more gains from trade from folks in the Levant than there are for the Mesopotamians. The third reason is more political, historical, something like that, more conceptual than real. The ultimate winners of ancient history from a Western perspective are the Romans and the Christians. Both groups were in the Levant a very long time and have important ties to Syria and Lebanon historically. Neither did nearly as much in Mesopotamia. Instead, Mesopotamia got conquered by the Persians, whose cultural focus was on the Iranian heartland. Then the Greeks may have established a capital near Babylon for a while, but that was one Greek empire that was short-lived, and they were very much a foreign dynasty, imposing Hellenist culture on the populace. They weren't rulers interested in learning the ancient ways of the sub- of their subjects. We're going to see a lot of people in the Mesopotamian era that move in and adopt Mesopotamian culture. The, we saw the Akkadians come in, and they basically become the new Mesopotamia. Then the Arameans came in, and then the Kassites came in, and there was consistency in Mesopotamian culture, later the Aramaeans and the, uh, did I say Aramaeans? I meant the Amorites earlier. The Aramaeans are going to come in and the Chaldeans are going to come in. They're going to absorb Mesopotamian culture to a degree that the Persians and the Greeks and the Parthians won't. And then in later times, you're going to get to the Muslims who are not going to care one bit about some temple to Isis. And that's going to be the end of that. Mesopotamia, even in later times, was still rich. Like, I'm talking about this climate disaster like it's some post-nuclear wasteland. But it's still going to be a rich, populated, important area. But it was never going to be as important to the people ruling over it as the Levant will be to the people who rule the Levant. And so historically, we remember later Mesopotamia as less important than later Syria. Now, another of Mr. Schneider's questions about trade routes, what was traded and how did it shift, which is a question that's really huge, and honestly, I'm probably going to put an episode together on the intricacies of trade at some point in the future, but one way that we can look at it just sort of quick is by thinking of less of trade routes, and more of what the chief exports and imports of each region were. These would have increased and decreased as conditions changed, but they're largely based on what natural resources were in each place. And so the actual patterns of trade, like the percent of trade, didn't change a whole lot, at least in the Bronze Age, just how much total was traded. Really, the first big technological invention after the start of civilization kicks trade off at all is the development of iron in the Iron Age, which was actually a really slow development. and slow. It didn't replace that much of the copper and tin trade until pretty late. Like, this is something we're going to see in the Neo-Assyrian Empire and the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So to survey from the East probably Afghanistan, which is its own long topic all on its own, probably from Afghanistan came lapis lazuli, tin, and various kinds of rocks. Most of it gets funneled into Mesopotamia, and the tin just went everywhere. Uh, From the south, mostly modern-day Oman is where Mesopotamia got much of its copper, and they also had other sorts of rock quarries. Egypt, famously, had a ton of gold, or technically electrum, but they thought of it as gold, which is good enough, and they had nice little worked goods, but the Mesopotamians were really just hungry for that gold. Anatolia had silver. Uh, It had silver, it had copper, and it had the trade links with Cyprus to get even more copper, and so that was a big factor uh, coming out of Anatolia. Mesopotamia itself produced grain, textiles, pottery, and reeds, and not a whole lot else, which they exported all over the Near East. And also, they used the stuff they imported from elsewhere to make metal tools and fine jewelry, which were high in demand in foreign courts. And they also exported culture, But unlike today, where culture is a major industry, the Mesopotamians largely gave their gods and knowledge away for free, whether they meant to or not. And Mr. Schneider, as his third question, also asks about the word harem as it relates to the Hebrew conquest, asking, does it mean completely destroy in a manner of given to God— And was there anything similar in use in other cultures? Now, let me tell you, the entire Israel question, of which the Canaanite conquest is but one part, is a massive and interconnected research project, which has been ongoing and will likely continue until, and probably even after I write the episodes on ancient Israel, which are coming up. The word itself, harem, is pretty basic. It's related to the famous Arabic word haram, which means prohibited by God, and it's also related to the much less famous Akkadian word harmu. I mean, is any Akkadian word famous? I don't know. Which also carries a meaning of prohibited. When this word is used in the context of the Canaanite conquest in the biblical book of Joshua, it gets translated in English as destroy utterly. As in, God commands that the people of Israel utterly destroy the Canaanites. Now, this whole thing is an active debate, as we'll see when we get to the Bible stuff. The whole thing is an exhausting, active debate. Much of it with people who are not informed, and even the people who are informed, uh, debate everything, every little thing, every little thing very heavily. And I'm not a Hebrew linguist. I'm not even an Akkadian linguist. I'm not any sort of linguist. I can't actually weigh in on what sort of Semitic nuances this particular Hebrew word can carry. I could say a few things, though, because even if I'm not a linguist, I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night, I guess, and I, I've read a bit, too. Uh, first is that a lot of the debate centers around people trying desperately to morally reframe the Canaanite genocide. Now look, our world today is much more gentle than the world of our ancestors, so far removed from the desperate struggle for daily existence and the ceaseless interpersonal threat of violence and the constant, pointless warfare that our perspectives are terribly skewed. These concepts of war crimes and genocide simply didn't exist, though it's, that's of course because the actions were so common and expected that they hardly deserved labels. The debate over harem is a modern imposition on a world that wouldn't have considered it a question worth asking. That said, the ideas of destroying one's enemies wholesale, and what that actually means in practice, are something we're going to look at a lot in the Iron Age, both among the Babylonians and Assyrians, and also by the time we get to the Bible itself, we're going to have a lot more context for these questions. All right, listener JB wants to know also a lot about the early Jews, much of which we will take detailed answers later in the show, which I promise, I promise, I promise are forthcoming, even if it's going to be a while. Still, there are two questions. Were any Mesopotamian idols still being worshipped in the early Christian era, and did Mesopotamian civilization survive in any way until the Christian era? Now, the answer to the first is a yes in two small ways. In Mesopotamia, there were a few active cults, and by idols I assume he means the Mesopotamian gods, not the physical gods. statues, so we're discovering some of those even today. Um, There were a few active cults at least to Ishtar and possibly a few others uh, way after the Mesopotamian era ended, into the Christian era. They were all waning, though, because the cuneiform writing system was mostly dead by the time of Christ, and the Akkadian language was in the process of being lost completely the series of foreign conquests were pretty rough on Mesopotamian religion and culture in general, but it was the complete phasing out of the old languages that really killed it so thoroughly that the civilization was ultimately close to forgotten. Which gets us to question two, where we can see that the answer is pretty much no. From a high-level political standpoint, There were few, if any, Babylonian or Akkadian or Sumerian or whatever revival rebellions. I mean, at all. I mean, there were a few in the Persian era, but by the time of the Christian era, they were were done. The Mesopotamians had largely taken on new identities by that point, and many of the old cities had just died off completely due to shifts in the river, changes in climate, salinization of the lands. You've heard all these things before. On the other hand... The actual practice of day-to-day living, even up until the Muslim era, was likely quite recognizable, even to an ancient Sumerian 3,000 years prior. Accounting for differences in language and cult practice, houses were still made out of mud brick, metal was still really scarce, fields were still planted and harvested by irrigation agriculture on a similar time frame, and even today in the modern era, there's still a few remote villages and swamp towns where the people follow the old ways of life. I mean, in that sense, Mesopotamian civilization is still around today. The same sorts of people, the descendants of these ancient people, still live in the same sorts of places and do the same sorts of things. It's the only the creeping modernization, the globalization, the urbanization, plus You know, a whole 20 years of American occupation that's really killing off a way of life that literally dates back before the beginning of history. I mean, how much longer will these these swamp people down in southern Iraq hang on? I don't know. Anyway, Missy from Texas wants to know what moral values were most respected by Mesopotamian civilization. Now, thankfully, as big as a question as this seems to be, for the Mesopotamians, at least, it's a pretty easy thing to know. They left us a lot of proverbs and literature that, in various ways, encouraged people to stick closely to a certain value set. And goodness, it is, in some ways, quite different from the values we follow today. At the very heart of Mesopotamian morality is a strong sense that they knew exactly, exactly what the purpose and meaning of a human life was. Humans were robots, made out of mud, created to work hard and serve the gods. A person creating a disruption in society, anything from full-on rebellion down to just making too much noise out in the street, was frowned upon, or, I mean, if, if his disruptions were too great, he was run out of the community. There was a strong sense in ancient Mesopotamia that the fundamental things of life never really changed, which meant that a man or woman was judged and judged themselves primarily on what sort of household they could create for the next generation. For men, this was how many sons they could father and how much wealth he could add to the household. For women, This was how many children in general and how well she could manage the household affairs. This may seem to us more like ambitions than moral virtues, but no, they were moral imperatives from the top of society down to the bottom. Which also helps answer her second question. She also wanted to know if different social classes dealt with marriage differently. And for the most part, the answer is no. Now, the actual wedding ceremony and party and the wedding payments involved would, of course, have been far more lavish for a wealthy family than a poor family. But from top to bottom, the heart of marriage was the same for all social classes. One man married one woman by contracting with her family essentially a purchase of the wife for the purpose of managing a household and bearing children, in exchange for the husband providing security and sustenance. For a king, this meant that the king needed heirs and this needed the social structure of a family for his legitimacy and prestige, just as much as a peasant needed these same things, though he needed them just to survive and have purpose and be affirmed in the eyes of the gods and have a good afterlife. The only difference existed at the very top of society because while men of all social classes could visit women, we'll say, outside of the marriage contract, formal monogamy was the general rule. It was never a law, but it was a widely held custom all around the Middle East. Kings, however, could marry as often as they wanted, and the super-wealthy partially to submit political alliances, and partially for the pleasure and prestige of collecting women. And finally, from my family, my Uncle Jerry asks what I would consider the Mesopotamian's greatest contribution to society. That, however, is a particularly difficult question. So much of Mesopotamian science, culture, and understanding Informed and mixed with Egyptian and Anatolian and Canaanite and Persian and Greek and Jewish thought and culture, and often at a super early period in the other cultures' development. So these foreign gods and these foreign concepts, a lot of the time, weren't even recognized as foreign. When we get to the Old Testament, we'll see that much of the context of the book of Joshua and the book of Kings and the law of Moses draws from the external world that the Israelites are living in. But even a lot of Bible scholars don't recognize it as coming from somewhere unless they seriously study ancient Mesopotamia. The point is that the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Mesopotamians contributed to building Western civilization that their contributions are so fundamental it's hard to even see them and a lot of what I could offer as contributions are really broad and they're hard to see if you don't look at the really foreign cultures like you can't compare the Sumerians to the Europeans or the North Africans or the Middle Easterners because all these groups are intellectually descended in part from Mesopotamia. You have to look at The Chinese, the Mayans, the Pacific Islanders. Anyway, with that in mind, contribution number one, in my mind, is empiricism. We think of empiricism as the hallmark of early modernity, and and it is. And we also think of people learning from experience as something that every baby around the world does, and that's true too. But right around the time that the Chinese are inventing writing is about the same time that the Babylonians are starting to invent astronomy and and astrology. There wasn't really a difference back then. But these early astrologers already, by, by the Iron Age, have hundreds of years of clay tablets recording observations of various planetary bodies, stellar bodies, over centuries. Now this wasn't a computer database, it wasn't an Excel spreadsheet of every star in the sky, it wasn't the, the Hubble telescope. But here's the thing. It was, even, even though it was damaged, by the time the later Babylonian scribes started correlating the data, I mean, they had this theoretical idea that things occurring in the heavens were correlated with things here on earth. And this this premise is, by modern understandings, just false. But that's not the point. They took that premise and, for centuries, undertook detailed recordings. And not even like some central academy of astrology. This wasn't like some powerful king made a research institute and it lasted for hundreds of years. No, this was just various interested scribes in various kingdoms over a long period of time... And then hundreds of years later, people were able to use that extensive data set to build the most complex model of the heavens that humanity had yet devised. Now, astronomy is just one example, and there will someday be a whole episode or two on Babylonian mathematics. Math history is really interesting because pretty much every civilization develops geometry, On their own and basic accounting mathematics on their own no one at all then made the jump from there to algebra not in the conceptual sense that we understand it now until some Arabs in 800 CE so uh, like when I was studying math we went from geometry to no we went from algebra to I think maybe we did algebra first I don't even remember Uh, this is middle school math stuff Like, they were stuck at middle school math for most of the world, for most of history, until some Arabs, and then until the modern period. The Babylonians, though, using their cuneiform number systems, were doing linear equations, quadratic equations, pretty advanced stuff. A lot of the stuff, in fact, we traditionally credit Pythagoras for discovering, like the Pythagorean theorem, was probably not even discovered by Greeks at all, just learned from the Babylonians. Some of some of these things have been invented 2,000 years before. The Pythagorean theorem is 2,000 years older than Pythagoras. Um, and there's certain types of equations and mathematical tools that were some are claiming were forgotten until the modern era. Now, I, I haven't tracked down all of this. I haven't gone deep into all these claims because... I, I just haven't done it yet. Uh, I will for this math episode when I put it together. I, I haven't done it. Um, and I mean, the hardest math... Here's the thing. I, the hardest math I ever took in college was linear algebra. And I had to take it twice. I honestly don't remember passing either time. I assume like a, a professor fudged my grade when I wasn't paying attention, which my last year of school, I definitely wasn't. Don't be like me, kids. Go to school or you end up a podcaster. You don't want that. Anyway, uh, the Babylonians, the point, the point is not me taking linear algebra. The point is that the Babylonians, without a full framework of calculus and stuff, they did linear algebra. They may have been using certain techniques to perform advanced matrix multiplications and matrix algebra using tools inherent in the cuneiform number system that we can't actually use with our modern Arabic numerals because they revolve around like playing tricks with the dots and the dashes in base 20 and base 60. It just doesn't, doesn't work without the, the dots. Like you move some dots over here in a certain pattern it's super complicated. I don't know. We're going to cover it at some point. How is it a contribution? Here's the point. How is it a contribution if these techniques were forgotten? It's the, it's the idea of empiricism, which doesn't seem to have arisen in the same degree in other cultures. Every scribe in Babylonia trained how to write by making a dictionary of every word they knew, organized by conceptual feature. They didn't have alphabetical order. They didn't have an alphabet. They had cuneiform. Uh, This sort of project evolved into categorization works, lexical lists, medical texts, lists of all sorts of things, and eventually you have Aristotle, who builds half his career around the idea that knowledge comes when we take everything in the world and organize it into boxes. Ptolemy, the astrologer, Ptolemy the Ast- T- T- I think it's Ptolemy the Astrologer. I don't know. This ancient astrologer, the guy that calculated how big the Earth was, he, he admired the old, what they called the Chaldean astronomers. Uh, he, just, he modeled taking massive astronomical calculations from the Babylonians. The point that I'm dancing around here is that there was a hard-nosed pragmatism in Mesopotamian culture that starts all the way back at ancient Sumer, which has never really left Western civilization. Not to say that other cultures lack pragmatism or empiricism, but that strain is stronger in places affected by Jews and Greeks, who in turn were affected by the successors of the Sumerian tribes. Now, there's other things I could mention. Writing itself, for example, and not just making marks on clay or paper or whatever, but influencing our ideas of what should be written down and what forms that should take is different in the West because of that Mesopotamian influence compared to, say, China and the East where writing was invented separately and literary and philosophical genres are often quite different. I could talk about all their practical inventions and the work they did selectively breeding plants and animals, which has done a lot for our modern quality of life. And there are ways in which their religion impacted the faith of both the Greeks and the Jews, who of course themselves are the intellectual foundations of Western society. But the ultimate fact of the matter is that the whole civilization was lost to time. Nebuchadnezzar is more famous than any of the Hittite kings, more famous than Sargon of Akkad, more famous than Hammurabi, maybe not more I don't know, maybe more famous than Hammurabi, all because he sacked Jerusalem and made it into the Bible, while most of the other men of his entire 4,000-year civilization were forgotten until modern archaeology. So any lasting influence really has to come through something that was inherited, then necessarily transformed by the Greeks and the Jews and all the other ways that uh, Western civilization was founded. Anyway, this has been the Listener Questions episode. I'm always super happy to get any question in my email or just to chat with folks about ancient Mesopotamia. Over on the oldeststories.net website, There's a contact page. And also, I've I've been sort of doing pretty good with answering questions in the comments and the DMs over on TikTok. Sometimes I'm even making little TikTok videos answering questions if there's an answer that fits in that particular time frame. And have have I mentioned on the show that I'm doing TikTok? I don't know. I'm doing TikTok over on Oldest Stories. I do fact of the week things. Um... Go check them out. I think I'm having fun. I'm doing a couple a week. Uh, I'm doing the Hittites right now by the time this episode comes out. I don't know what I'm doing. I just read stuff, find little facts. I got a lot of books. Anyway, next time, next time, next time, we're going to get into the long-awaited Daily Life in Ancient Mesopotamia episodes, where I'm going to look at a number of different industries in the ancient world. So join us next time and prepare to get muddy as we look at the mud brick construction industry. Thank you for listening.